there is a way out of this. We humans must accept that infinite growth on a finite planet is suicide. We must accept that our human presence is already far beyond sustainability and all that that implies. We must take control of our environmental movement and our future from billionaires and their permanent war on planet Earth. They are not our friends. Less must be the new more. And instead of climate change, we must at long last accept that it's not the carbon dioxide molecule destroying the planet. It's us. It's not one thing, but everything we humans are doing. A human-caused apocalypse. If we get ourselves under control, all things are possible. And if we don't... So that was basically a summary of the entire movie that we just watched, uh, which was Planet of the Humans, the new Michael Moore movie with, I guess, his often co-director Jeff Gibbs. Uh, that was really, really bleak, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, upsetting is maybe this was just where I'd begin. I think there's something quite existentially really disenchanting about what the movie represents. And I think we're going to get into it more, but just to sort of foreground at the top that this is perhaps as good a crystallization as we've found yet of precisely what this podcast is meant to really be positioned against. This movie really takes the logics of scarcity and zero sum and the reification of private property of the economy the naturalization of capitalism as synonymous with production in general to the most extreme logical conclusion that it could possibly go to, which, you know, basically there's a bunch of moments in the film that, you know, essentially say, you know, this is more than just climate change. This is about all of the ways that human beings interact with the planet that we occupy. Climate change for them is one manifestation of the real problem, which seems to be humanity. Yeah. And we're going to get into this more, but this really, I mean, it, the film really touches on these debates in that are happening throughout like sort of the environmental humanities and these sorts of questions around the Anthropocene, the specific ways that human activity is structured in opposition to so-called the natural world. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the way this sort of unfurls throughout this episode. But I think perhaps we should start with what some of the responses to the film has been. And we can also perhaps provide a brief summary through those responses. Yeah. So the the response that I really want to open with, because I think it's it represents the best kind of launching point for, for our perspective and our uh, way of seeing this movie was written by Kate Aronoff in The New Republic. Her review was called The Important Debate Planet of the Humans Misses. 
uh, subheading, instead of lambasting yesteryear's renewable energy, the movie could have taken up current, more relevant questions. And Bill McKibben also wrote a response in Rolling Stone, uh, cited a lot of the factual errors of the movie. Mm -hmm. Let me just read really quick. Several of the decaying wind turbines and abandoned solar panels criticized in the film no longer exist, and in some cases been long since replaced by new and higher functioning renewables. Problems of intermittency and efficiency with solar power, which the film cites as proof of solar technology's failure, have been vastly improved through years of dedicated research. Uh, and so there's, you know, those kinds of issues, but we we really wanted to say thank you to Kate and Bill McKibben and all the people who've been, you know, doing that fact-checking and you talk about kind of what the real narrative of the film is. And Kate is actually really good on this note as well. Uh, she says later, In the end, many of the film's problems stem from its inability to perceive a crucial distinction one environmentalists can miss too between renewables advocates and the renewables industry. And basically, in relating Bill McKibben and the organization 350, setting aside whether or not you think 350 or Bill McKibben is, you know, absolutely perfect in every way, the movie positions them as being two sides of the same coin as Mike Bloomberg and, you know, the whole kind of greenwash, you know, nonprofit industrial complex. And in doing so and making drawing that kind of conflation between activists on the one hand and neoliberal elements co-opting the language of activists on another the movie in my opinion i think traffics in what's really a common right-wing trope you know which is to say that all of these you know identity politics or you know climate change or you know the green new deal they're not anything that normal, quote unquote, people care about organically. They're all a cultural agenda that's being pushed on us by elites. And so, you know, you see in Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty and The Hill Show Rising, which we talked about in the first episode, mm -hmm. one of their common tacts is to, you know, take some example of a genuinely left wing person who's concerned about anti-racism and put them side by side with Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and MSNBC, thus, you know, drawing the conclusion that all identity politics is neoliberal identity politics. In this movie, all renewables are neoliberal renewables. Yeah. And I think that that sort of starts off where we can really dig into how this film falls down and, and perhaps not even falls down is the right word, like is actually quite pernicious on its own, even on its own terms, mm -hmm. which Kate Kate talks about too, this too in the piece, but the the way that this we is being constructed in the film, like humans, we right, we are doing this. Also, it identifies a they, which exactly. is some humans as well, right? Which is some humans as well. Like, so we are killing the earth. We are occupying the earth because we've been subsumed by they. Because we've been subsumed by the they of capitalism. And what this implies then, and this is something we talked about also in episode two, where we discussed Giorgio Agamben's work and, and sort of linkages to sort of the fetish of nature, is the fact that what this always implies, and this comes out in the wash of who was really in this film and who this 
film was made by, which is we is usually talking about the West and Western, like middle to upper classes that are coded as white. Western families. Western, right. Western nuclear consumptive families. Mm-hmm. What's predominantly occurring is that it's this white, modern Western form that is trying to absolve itself of the guilt for the trajectory of the modern expropriation of nature and how the logic of the subject and this sort of Lockean liberal subject of man in nature, which we talked a lot about last time, is at the heart of the problems that we have as far as environmental expropriation and unsustainable practices. I mean, fundamentally, I think um, that's what we were, we would argue. And so therefore what this does is it groups in people of color and people from the global South and in marginalized communities who are not to blame for, for what is happening to the earth right now at a structural and systemic level, which is not to say that, people don't have agency throughout this process and that expropriation doesn't occur. But that fundamentally speaking, to blame like so-called capitalism for climate change or for the expropriation of the earth means to blame specific logics. And it doesn't mean to blame humanity as such. And I think that's where we would come down on this. And um, and I think Kate will probably uh, say that in the piece in a lot more of a succinct way than I than I can right now. Yeah, I can actually tell you. Uh, she says, humanity and planet of the humans is the enemy, and any attempts to salvage its future are fair game for ridicule as the work of either profiteering liars or misdirected rubes. The film's turn toward population control, which, yeah, is another... It's basically the thing that comes out of this movie because if the problem is capitalism and capitalism is autonomous from law and we are powerless to stop capitalism and its own internal logics from subsuming all of humanity, then of course it doesn't matter where the population control is coming from or whose fault it is. Because no matter what, the solution is just going to be, well, these are the biophysical needs of society during capitalism, which can only be ended by ending all production. So, sorry. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this comes back to what we talked about, like capitalism is the virus versus the virus is the virus. Mm -hmm. Let's dig into this as far as like its lineage is concerned. Because I think there's ways in which this film actually does open up something as far as like analytically speaking. Yeah. That is interesting, which it seems to be, getting at the fact and we we said this uh already but human activity human creation is itself the problem mm-hmm. which is which is to say that it doesn't really matter if energies are renewable because I, I think ultimately the sleight of hand that's happening here in the film is the film is structure structuring its argument around the fact that renewable energy is not actually renewable. It actually uses fossil fuels. But the real argument here is has nothing to do with renewable energy. It has to do with energy in the first place, like energy in itself, mm-hmm. which is to suggest that human use, any human use over energy, 
is de facto unsustainable. Right. Because what it does is it changes the so-called naturalized status of the earth. It brings the earth into relation with the subject, right? Right. A human subject into relation with an earth. And that relation, as is imagined in the film, can only be one of domination and one of expropriation. Because use as such, through the logic of the film, is expropriative. So in that way, there's no renewable energy. Like this, this film is, is saying renewable energy is not possible because any human interaction like any human metabolic interaction with the earth will always be one of entropy, of extraction, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting in how that then actually we can actually dig into a definition of capitalism through that perspective. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. The, the other thing that stood out to me about that before we start talking about defining capitalism, this is calling back to our second episode where we talked about social contract theory, is, is this idea of nature as a subject and humanity's first interferences into nature essentially non-reciprocally, right? Nature didn't ask us to do this, but we interfered in nature and now we owe nature, right? As an other, as as, an other that we're occupying. Mm -hmm. The only way that you can undo that is by literally undoing the the existence of humanity as interacting with nature Mm -hmm. in the first place because the whole problem was the interaction with nature that's what unsettled the balance sheet yeah yeah. (laughs) you know between between us and the environment it's interesting because you know there's a moment the moment at the end of the film and i think this is very much what obviously the title is is thematizing right where the i think it was an orangutan it climbs down from a tree and it's climbing down into a world of destruction. And obviously, the, you can feel the, the suffering of this animal in, in this scene. And what is being thematized is that humans never should have come down from the tree. Right. And so I think it's important to then take this movie and say, on the one hand, this is horrible and evil and we should ign- ignore it and reject it for what it is. Um, and we can show later in as we continue talking, you know, go through some more elaborated texts on where this logic really does lead and what it actually means to believe we should have never come down from the tree. Yes. And on one hand, it opens up a sort of way to understand, I think, Marxist understandings of capitalism as metabolism. And I do want to dig into this a little bit as well, because this, I think, on the left and as we like think about the way this movie speaks to degrowth movements and and the the complicated relationships to growth i think this is a crucial way where we can actually make the logics of the film legible for a left and how we need to overcome them rather than just say oh okay well obviously he's malthusian and like he's malthusian let's get into like what that implies yeah so, because at the core of this idea that the only thing humanity can do is stop producing is that production itself and 
capitalism itself is a machine, and this is just Marxism. <laughs> you know, this is unfortunately pretty common among strains of the radical left, where for Marx and for all of the Marxist traditions, capital and the logic of the capital relation as a historical process of subsuming previous modes of production, previous localized ways of living. It is a machine with no room for agency that runs naturally, and the motor of that machine is profits. And is this idea that the capitalist always needs to be searching for profits and getting profits from exploiting labor, and otherwise they will die or become exploited labor. Mm -hmm. And the way that we want to turn this upside down a little bit is by suggesting that the decision to hold human production hostage to profits is itself reifying profits and profit generation and naturalizing public unaccountability and public irresponsibility as being a natural result of this metabolic process, rather than being motivated by an ideology that says there's a metabolic process happening right now that we can do nothing about. Right. So to dig into like this metabolic process as it relates to like Marxism and ecology literature, for those listeners who aren't familiar with these sorts of conversations, Marx theorizes what he calls a metabolic rift, a, a sort of rupture in this sort of natural metabolism of Earth. It's not even reductive to say, thanks to how what he sees is the sort of monetary value form mediating production between quote-unquote man and nature. And to deconstruct this a little bit, I think it's important, obviously, first to say that the structure of the value form is based on, for Marx, a state in which man and nature are in a sort of sustainable, almost harmony. It's a, it's a state of nature, right? It's a prior to legal obligation. It's a prior to social relation. And that, for us, is not only anthropologically, historically untenable, but theoretically untenable. And because it precisely produces the theory that the moment so-called value gets in between this sort of reified Lockean man and mm -hmm. and this so-called object called nature is the one that defines capitalism and one that can't be surmounted metabolically at the level of the biological process of the earth so long as we have monetarily mediated production. And as you just said quite well, and then the profit motive spills out of that, and the profit motive is imagined as this natural process of, of private capital accumulation. Mm -hmm. And we want to totally shatter that narrative to say that we can still say, yeah, like seeing nature as this object that is separate from the subject is a problem. That's anthropocentrism, right? Like that's that's a problem. That's a problem of the enlightenment. That's a problem of uh, these reified structures of theology that persisted throughout the early modernity and then throughout high modernity. There's there's a lot of problems with the way 
humans have interacted with nature. And this is producing unsustainable paths. But let's not kid ourselves to tie that solely to the money form, Mm -hmm. right? Let's like really give weight to the fact that, I don't know, like these theological ideas that have persisted actually play into the way we think about nature and the way we treat nature. And that, I don't know, maybe that means that new ideas can change the way we interact with nature. And I think fundamentally speaking, that is what we would want to insert into this, is the fact that there is a way in which humans can produce and live that doesn't set a teleology of destruction into motion in which nature is fundamentally going to so-called like push back and reality is going to push back and is going to destroy human activity like we can mitigate against climate change right but in order to do that we cannot start with the idea of some kind of primordial state of non-relation with each other and non-relation to nature. Because as soon as we start from that state, the only way that we can get out of it ultimately is to push ourselves further and further into non-relation, into non-production, into non-sociality, into non-existence. Whereas if we start from a philosophical uh, stance of humanity itself as always already interrelated and always already dealing with its own political organization and humanity and nature as being always already interrelated and humanity always already mediating its own interactions with nature. And as well, I just want to say like humanity as nature, but a differentiated form of nature. Right. It's tiered, you know, right? Like we have institutions, relations, ecological relations. It's not ontologically flat. It is always a structure. It was never not a structure. And so I think this maybe should move us into one of the ways in which the structure that is Marxist ecology, which again, which which shouldn't be wholly equated with this film. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's some important similarities that don't get necessarily uh, spoken to completely in either Kate Aronoff's piece or Bill McKibben's response, right? Bill McKibben doesn't really address the questions of population control that that Jeff Gibbs and, the, and that the film really push for. And Kate does, as you were reading, in, yeah. in, in ways and, and explicitly calls out this sort of racist white history of environmentalism, which is obviously necessary. But I think this really brings up a question, and as we heard in the opening of this podcast with the film, about endless growth, Right. And what that means and what that mm-hmm. implies and what what a finite planet implies. Like what that does that imply to say? Because at one level, I think a lot of listeners are going to be like, oh, well, you know, and even MMTers talk about this. Well, we have finite resources and, you know, we can only balance our human activity with the supply of resources that are finite. I want to push back against both sides of this in order to really talk about the way the left thinks about degrowth, right. which is to say, number one, no, we don't have finite resources, right? Like some people could talk about like a finite number of like energy potential output at the level of atomic reproduction. 
But that's not actually what that means when you say we have finite resources. Right. Right. Yes, there are there are constraints. Of course there are. To do certain things in certain ways. Right. But I guess I would ask, like, are there a finite number of humans on this planet? Well, obviously the answer is no, because we can create more humans. Reproduction implies a certain sort of growth in that way, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what this film is actually negating, right? It's negating our ability to create because then it, it, it thinks of creation and human creation and human reproduction of itself as a sort of supply demand curve. Right. Okay. So let's think about like creation is a possibility. Like even imminent human creation is a possibility, but also like, okay, can we facilitate the creation of food? Right. Are there constraints? Yes. Can we plant trees? Can we reproduce trees? Oh, are there constraints? Yes. But the, the answer to all of this is, at some level, right? Yes, we can. Right. And the other thing is that there's an important disjuncture between what our social needs are that we are producing in order to satisfy and our actual production itself, right? We can make cups out of a different material, <laughs> you know? Right. We can adjust our inputs to meet the same quote-unquote output because outputs themselves are cultural, you know? I mean, maybe, you know, all humans need water, but there is a ceremonial and cultural element in everything that we produce. Mm -hmm. And then on the, on the side of resources, yes, you can have a finite amount of any one really specific thing, one really specific resource, but as you said, humanity is not finite. And also the universe is not finite. Big call out of, the, of Bergson there. I think you're going to get the Bergson haters uh, really coming back against you on this one. Yeah, I, I really, I really am. Because I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but it seems to me that since whether or not something's a resource in the first place depends on a human construction of a need for it, and of a way of producing it. Yep. And there's a disjunct between those social, those inherently social needs and what we're using, what we're producing, how we're producing it to satisfy those needs. Mm -hmm. We certainly can't have scarcity in the way that the logic of economics says that we have it. And there's just this slippage between production, which is really just consciously organizing human relations, right? We could mm -hmm. be producing education, you know? We could be producing baseball games. We could be producing anything. But the fact that we see production as this biological, metabolic process, fundamentally, it creates this kind of tunnel vision that just makes it impossible to see how people are always reproducing themselves, always reproducing their relationship with the environment, and the environment is always yeah. reproducing itself and everything else is in, you know indirectly involved with its own reproduction. And this is like crucial too because what what's happening in these like sort of imminent discourses you could call it vitalism too that that sort of naturalize or flattens all life as one sort of vital force, right? Rather than thinking with how relation and um, ideas and then some you know forms of consciousness interact which is to say like if you're thinking from the base in and only in the base and not thinking with the superstructure mm. in the base 
relations are materially zero sum and therefore are in their nature scarce, right? Like if it's also predicated then on like this sort of energetic contact. But if you burn wood, right, to create fire, to create energy, it's a one-to-one relation, you know, largely speaking. This is a mm-hmm. sort of zero-sum logic of creation. It's it's tax <laughs> to spend, one could even call it, right? But in the superstructure, relations are not zero-sum, fundamentally speaking. Mm-hmm. Like, we can reorient the way we relate to ourselves, to nature, to the universe in ways and open up that to just and meaningful relations in ways that don't take away either from quote unquote the natural world or our own world. It doesn't cost me and cost being a very particular word here (laughs) to relate to you and relate to my mom at the same time. Like I, I'm not taking something away from you. There's something generative about those relations. And likewise, there's something generative and productive about relations of reproduction, right? They, they're creative relations. Yeah. They can be destructive, but they're always creative. And it's what, what we need to work through in our reproduction of ourselves and then our environments and our environments, reproductions of ourselves and themselves is how we best want to organize these relations and to think with how we want to make them the most just without reifying structures, Mm -hmm. but in ways that explicitly politicize the ideas that are contributing to how we set up those relations. And so like, no, we shouldn't be burning fossil fuels. Right. But that has nothing like literally that has nothing to do with money as a medium. Yeah. Or with whether or not our number of relations with each other is on an unsustainable path. Exactly. <laughs> and whether that's but, you know, what's so interesting, actually, this is a total tangent that I didn't plan. But going back to how this ideology of capital and of markets being these natural machines of expanded reproduction and constant growth. Thinking about how like social media platforms are designed, you know, there's so much ink has been spilled by, you know, different people talking about, you know, social media trains us to see ourselves as neoliberal agents in a marketplace of ideas and, you know, a marketplace of personalities. And a lot of the time we end up talking about it as if social media is causing us to relate to each other in an unsustainable way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like the the sort of hell site idea that it's just we're spinning out of control. Yeah, it's like we have inflationary uh, social media relations, which is not to say that like social media is a privatized hellscape. Like it it absolutely like social media is Mm -hmm. a privatized hellscape. Um, But it's just to say that it's not, again, the fact of the relation quantitatively that is producing this it is the qualitative nature of the of these relations right um yeah and and that's the key and then i think that like i want to tie this then to this crucial distinction about growth between quantitative growth and qualitative growth and what what gets missed in talks of growth like what does growth even mean well how many quantitatives are in a qualitative max (laughs) (laughs) so like 
all of the discussion and back and forth on degrowth versus like eco modernism and you know what this entirely misses is like what are we measuring here Mm -hmm. what are we talking about growth like the film says endless growth on a finite planet is suicide what is growth here are we talking about gdp because yeah sure when we grow gdp right now in qualitatively expropriative structures Mm -hmm. that's bad right that's bad for the the biosphere and the and the ecosystems that are being expropriated. I just had a heart attack imagining how much GDP would rise if we had a federal jobs guarantee. Well, well, right. That this gets at the qualitative composition argument because the point is, of course, that the measurement of GDP as output is one that's measured. I mean, at least like you know, nominal GDP because real GDP is fake, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but nominal GDP being this sort of measured quantitative relation of output. Okay, well, what if we paid people $70,000 a year to do environmental remediation? Right. Okay, how does that affect GDP? Which is to say, like, that sounds great. Like, I think that's what a Green New Deal in its best should be, is this sort of project of world making and reimagining and building that aims, and Kate, you know, Kate Aronoff has written about this too, that it reimagines a world in which production is sustainable and just, but that it has nothing to do with the monetary measure of the GDP of GDP, which a lot of people have tweeted at me about this. Whenever I talk about this on Twitter, where they say, okay, but can GDP successfully be decoupled from this expropriative logic, which assumes at in the very first place that GDP is somehow coupled to this expropriative logic in like a literal material relation. No, this is just these are just fucking numbers, everyone. Like this is not coupled. This is a way of for humans to try and measure some sort of fictionalized identity of output. Yeah, and you know, all of the growth that is extractive and is harmful and that these people supposedly want to decouple from, you know, human development. All of that growth in the first place is undertaken by people who are legally embedded and legally defined as actors with abilities to do that investment, to form a corporation, get a corporate charter, have limited liability. Yep. The big conflation for me and the big kind of slippage is that people are confusing our idea of the profit motive And the way that we act according to that idea, right? The way that we impose limitations on ourselves as a public because we have constructed all of these logics of how the state really is just like another market actor, you know, like how, you know, (laughs) for Protestants, God is, you know, just another person. In the marketplace of theological ideas. (laughs) The marketplace of theological ideas. I want to then like actually make the link here between the degrowth reification of growth like as as gdp like obviously we could say first and foremost like yeah we need to stop growing the fossil fuel industry we need to stop growing our investment into expropriative productive relations but to somehow then naturalize that and say no we need to reduce our growth we need to stop mm-hmm. growing Right. I mean, you can see how quickly this slippage 
between growth, like if we're reifying growth as a material process, how then degrowth means destruction at the material level. I mean, this plays out in the famous interaction between Malthus, who of course, you know, argued that human activity was unsustainable and that there were imminent limits to human reproduction, right? Naturalized limits to human reproduction. And of course, Marx disagreed with Malthus, but not necessarily in the way that I think is like comes through when leftists talk like (laughs) about Malthusianism, because Marx essentially said Malthus is trying to make a sort of abstract rule that applies through all of history about these imminent limits. Right. Whereas what Marx wants to foreground are the historical relations and how the barriers and limits change given the different modes. And so I'm just going to read from uh, John Bellamy Foster on Marx's ecology, just really quickly to sort of explicate this, right? Sure. Foster writes, what is important in dealing with the question of overpopulation, implied for Marx, was the specific historical way it emerged in each case. Quoting Marx, in different modes of social reproduction, Marx wrote, there are different laws of the increase of population and of overpopulation. How small do the numbers which meant overpopulation for the Athenians appear to us? And so what we have here, of course, is Marx endorsing a logic of population control at some level, right? That there are imminent limits or natural laws of reproduction. Yeah, because the natural laws, even though they are historically bounded, they still are fundamentally unanswerable to people and fundamentally supersede and subsume agency at all levels of the process. So for, for Marx, I mean, frankly, it, it seems like a really pedantic distinction because Marx says, you know, you're, you're right, Malthus, but you didn't elaborate to say that in capitalism, we are materially bounded in a really specific way that's different from how we were materially bounded in prior epochs. But the point still is that we're materially bounded because our society itself has no agency. It's motor in various modes of production and various technological epochs. It still has a motor and it still has an internal logic until you get to totally unalienated communism, which for Marx is a state of non-relation or, you know, some kind of like... Localized autonomy. Yeah, a bunch of John Locke's who started a commune, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's a bunch of localized autonomy that itself, like, is degrowth, right? I mean, that's the idea, right? You sever relation. And then, you know, some people say, oh, we the only way we can do this is fully automated luxury communism because we can't actually reduce growth without reducing standard of livings and, you know, putting a bunch of people in danger. And they're right. But the solution is not to naturalize growth and then say, we just need more of it and technological growth, right? (laughs) This is a whole spectrum of thinking that is just so, uh, it's so problematic on both sides of that. Just to say explicitly here, like it's perfectly in accordance with Marx to say, we are in a, a Malthusian moment. Right. And therefore, population control is necessary, right? That is not a rejection of Marxism. 
right? That is that is a that is just a historically situated Malthusianism, which is what Marx's theory <laughs> which is of metabolism Marxism, is. Yeah. <laughs> right? It Marx's theory of metabolism is that historically situated Malthusianism, and so this is the main crux of the issue when we naturalize the universalization of capitalism, mm-hmm. because then the capitalism and the Anthropocene, right, become the same thing. Because capital exists outside of human intentionality and subsumes it. Right. So capital ultimately is the same thing. It's on a teleology of being the same thing. Right. And and so then, as we saw in the very cold open to this episode, right, the they, like billionaires and capitalism becomes the they that mm-hmm. defines the we, the us. Right. And so the Anthropocene and the capitalism become the same thing. And so I think this produces a really weird, like, left-right... Common sense. Skew yeah. and common sense around this question of thinking realistically about the environment. And so before we go in... I, I want to go even one step deeper into the Anthropocene discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we go there, let's read this review of the film by Breitbart and just oh, a, a few a few yeah. clips from it. Yeah, so will probably not shock anyone who's listened this far that Breitbart loved it. The title is Michael Moore-backed Planet of the Humans Takes Apart the Left's Green Energy Scams. The review basically performs this exact thing that the movie demonstrates, which is that you can get away with conflating neoliberal co-optations of activists, of marginalized people, with marginalized people themselves, with activists themselves, with people who you already wanted to shut up in the first place because you didn't, you know, care about them. And lest you just kind of say that they're that they're the same thing and that they're all bad actors. And so what the Breitbart Review says is Planet of the Humans makes the Green New Deal, beloved by the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, seem all but impossible. The solar and wind energy prescribed by the plan cannot be produced without the continuous use of fossil fuels. Then he goes on to say, But Gibbs and Moore are firmly on the left. The film argues that the only real way to save the planet is to control population and consumption, not to invest in, quote, green capitalism. So, renewable energy, doing anything short of calculating, you know, the human to pollution ratio and then cutting off the human population at whatever number, anything short of that is green capitalism, is Mm -hmm. this scam, this neoliberal and activist convergence on greenwashing, essentially. The only green that exists is greenwashing. And, you know, serious people understand that you're going to have to manage population, manage migration, manage consumption, do all of the things that the far right wanted to do the whole time. That's right. And this comes back to the the ultimate crux of this is when we reify scarcity, both like and, and hard limits, both at the level of imminent creation, like how humans can create and cultivate production systems and yeah. relations of material beings. And... Of course, crucially, when we reify money and say it is scarce, what we are doing is producing the conditions for the far right population control. 
That is the structure of this logic. It even becomes apparent like on the so-called left. Yeah, Michael Moore made this movie. Michael Moore starts advocating for genocide. It's not a direct advocacy. But it's it's a logical advocacy. Yeah, right? it's where the logics lead. It's and it's almost more insidious that he doesn't come out and say it because he doesn't positively say anything at all. All he does is say that non-renewables and renewables are fundamentally the same thing because everything is non-renewable, and at the bottom of it is humans consuming finite resources, no matter what, even if what they're doing on top of consuming finite resources is pretending to be relying on the sun for energy. Setting aside all of the empirical things that the movie gets wrong, the idea ultimately for them, they're never going to be satisfied unless people stop relating to the environment at all because the originary relation to the environment is taking. Yep. And you know, like, I, I think I want to say also just affirmatively on on its own terms what we're for here. We are for the flourishing and growth of just and sustainable human animal natural relations, right? Like we want more relations, yeah. right? I mean, I don't know. I'm sitting in quarantine, you know, just like everyone else. I am alienated, right? I miss being able to relate to people in all sorts of different ways. And it's not enough just to have the relations that we are all having right now. And that does not importantly mean to say that it's not enough. We need like non-mediated relations again, right? Yeah. All relations are mediated. And so what we need is the flourishing and cultivation of an abundant amount of relation. And conscious and created relations. Correct. You know, not relations in terms of some kind of unconscious biological growth or some Mm -hmm. metabolic process of freedom and inactivity spreading amongst the world and healing the world. Thoughtful relations. Yeah. Right. And that's where it comes down to this, 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 the superstructure and this really like ideas and, and how we want to center thought, right. Theory, thought and affirm it's, already prior centrality in the mediation of our relations so then i i want to then really see like at the level of where this all leads where the reified structures lead right and so to do this i am going to read from a book called a recent book called the a human manifesto yeah honestly i really can't believe this exists yeah i I read some passages from this it's it's really really brutal i would honestly i would love to just read this out loud to michael moore and you know watch him kind of cut around the edges of it without actually disagreeing yeah it's written by a, a an academic patricia mccormack and she comes from the school of sort of like post-human thought and what then she's like really pushing into a human thought. And that comes from a sort of lineage of Spinozan or Deleuzean, Deleuzean or Deridian, like these sort of, for the most part, like French philosophical thinkers and ones who have variously, obviously Derrida and Deleuze and Spinoza have written uh, about a lot of things, but have theorized this sort of relation of the animal and the way that implication in animality is fundamental to uh, human subjectivity. And I think we're going to probably talk more about this sort of stuff. So I don't want to go too much into the weeds uh, 
but on this podcast in general in future episodes. This reading is going to be the opposite of going into the weeds. This is going to be like going into the id. Yeah, 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 exactly. This is straight, just like straight in my veins. This is the culmination. So the introduction is titled The End as Affirmation. Love it. And, you know, the first sentence is here, the end of the Anthropocene is the opening of the world. So it imagines in a, in a sort of like zero-sum taxpayer money relationship, <laughs> the opening, the creative possibility must be met by and, and only can be facilitated through ends, destructions. Because we owe the world a debt and we need to settle it. That's right. Um, and so, you know, she continues, the death of the Anthropocene opens up thousands of voices, trajectories, relations, and necessary activisms. And then in case you were, in case you thought, oh, she she means the Anthropocene as like this logical structure of the way particular relations of human activity are expropriating nature. She, she makes this very clear. She says, I use death here as it will be used in the entire manifesto, both advocating for the deceleration of human life through cessation of reproduction, thus death of humans, right? And though she, she says, and the absolute end of the perception that apprehends all living organisms and relations through anthropocentric signifying systems. So you should think money with that, anthropocentric signifying systems. And then it's important also to note that she writes, though, as will be made clear with the, with care as we live out the lives we have. Which is what socialism is ultimately, is you give up on growth and building new things and you just kind of manage the decline democratically. Right. And what she wants is ultimately the inevitable death of human existence, the cessation of human existence. Yeah. And this is not one that the A Human Manifesto wants to lament, right? It's not, this is not sad. No. Like she's, It would be selfish of us yeah. to lament it. And because so, for the world, it's a net positive. It, <laughs> it's a net <laughs> positive for life as such. And we flatten life. We look. We need a, a, an efficient, utility-maximizing f- form form of human-animal relations and human-nature relations, or just relations of life and nature as such. Which means, of course, you know, you have to trim a bit off the edges. You have to silence the margins, which is a callback to last episode. Uh, yep. <laughs> thinking about working-class solidarity, right, and what what this reification of a so-called working class does because the margins have their own totalizing logic. And if you don't socialize them, they'll take over life as such. Yep. And so I'm going to read for this sort of kicker here of the introduction of this manifesto, which is McCormack writes, it is better perhaps to describe the end of anthropocentrism as a form of secular ecstasy than martyrdom. A painful joy where limits and demarcations are dubious and tactical and aims are towards openings rather than resolutions. A call to action with no end in sight. A call to forsake human privilege. Practice abolitionist veganism. Cease reproduction of humans. Develop experimental modes of expression beyond the anthropocentric signifying systems of representation and recognition and care for this world at this time until we are gone. It's interesting that she calls herself an abolitionist, actually. Uh, I mean, she's extending how she understands abolition to be basically the secession 
of human society because slavery is, for her, natural to the logic of growth. Yeah. And of production. Of, of the wage relation. Like, this is, this is crucial, yeah. right? Yeah, of the wage relation, which there's no no turning back from. So, like, of course she's an abolitionist, you know, not just of economic growth consuming humans, but she's an abolitionist of economic growth consuming everything. Of consuming. She's an abolitionist of, of life, of human life. And we can totally get at precisely, like... I. You know, just to bring it back to the film, I was taken by just like how white this film was. Oh my god, it like was it's crazy. it's all what like the academics to the citizen activists, like literally by and large, anyone who was speaking through the narrative voice of this film was white, and so and in Vermont and and in Vermont specifically, right? <laughs> and like McCormack uses human privilege. As this structure, right? So, of course, this is an abolitionism. This is calling on, like, racial categories. And I think it it's important to suggest here that what is being said is that all humans are white when it comes to the earth. Yeah. Which... Yeah, to that whiteness is a totalizing logic that is connected to capitalism as a totalizing logic. Not something that you know, we can be responsible for transforming, but something that we have to kind of selflessly, you know, end through suicide. Right. And, and that's, that's exactly right. And so not only is it wrong when we're thinking about capitalism as a sort of logic of slavery and domination, I feel like this, it's a complicated story that there's many moving parts into, but to suggest that all people engaging in relations of monetarily mediated production are white slaveholders of nature is just such an embarrassing and disgusting <laughs> conflation. It's literally dehumanizing the victims of slavery. Exactly. It's literally dehumanizing and perpetuating the practice of dehumanization that was central to slave logics. Again, I, I always say, like, you know, on this on this podcast, I, you know, ultimately, I we need to hear from more voices on these sorts of questions. And so that's something that that we're well aware of. But I think just to absolutely fundamentally reject this sort of white veganism that seeks to construct and universalize guilts around whiteness <laughs> onto humanity as such yeah. is just it's it's disgusting and it and it leads to ultimately hilariously not hilariously tragically the logic that some people just need to stop living some cultures need to need to go away because this is not sustainable. And when a bunch of white people in the US are talking about population control, <laughs> let me tell yeah. you. I mean that that there's only one way that can go. Yeah, especially when it is representatives of the, you know, liberal left in the United States yeah. who are defining that as the left wing of the debate on this. You can only imagine what the yeah. right wing And as the right cheers it on. Yeah, as the right cheers it on, yeah. as in the case of Breitbart. Right. Perhaps to conclude, I would ask those who are in like these deep growth spaces who do see themselves as socialists. Um, I, I do think fundamentally, ultimately, 
a lot of people who do naturalize these relations of growth do so out of not having fully thought through all the consequences of what the social construction of capitalism implies. Yeah, it's the same thing as, you know, people want to be free of having to work for capitalists and sell their labor to do a bunch of things that are literally designed to exclude them <laughs> from yeah. from participation and from enjoying it as as anything other than an input and you know like that's understandable that is how a principled you know moral person would look at something like wage labor and what we're trying to do here is open up our sense of at what places this is directed by agency, even as that agency is choosing to reify it and hopefully show how we can change it through it. In and through. It's the only way. And I'll just say, like, everyone, read Fred Lee, please. <laughs> like, if you're going to yeah. have thoughts about pricing and growth and anything and agency and profit, read Fred Lee. Fred Lee, for, for listeners, taught at University of Missouri, Kansas City, uh, passed away a few years ago, um, but posthumously uh, a textbook that was sketching his idea of what an alternative economics could be from starting from micro foundations. And most notably, in relation to this conversation, Lee describes a system that is socially constructed at all levels, mm -hmm. that even as it draws on resources is actively defining and categorizing parts of nature as resources, depending on the agency of people to make that decision of what we're going to produce. And he talks about agency and governance at all levels of this system as being legally mediated and as being levers that were constructed, can be changed, and can be acted through, rather than naturalizing markets, naturalizing the price mechanism, naturalizing this idea of an economic process that will run its course and destroy us unless we stop existing, which we try to show in this episode, and which Planet of the Humans shows probably better than us, is where this logic all leads. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk, I think, you know, in, in some ways on the left of like red brownism, which in, in a lot of ways, I think to cut off that logic is to show how the logic of scarcity itself, it's not a leftist logic. Yeah. We can think about protecting and safeguarding life and valuing life specifically because individual lives are scarce without suggesting that individual sovereign life is rounded up to the whole. Mm -hmm. We can still keep the logic of every individual life being precious while suggesting that the growth of individual lives, especially because they're so precious, isn't necessarily as a goal-oriented process one that needs to be paid for by some sort of sacrifice. Yeah. 